Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. The Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, this is the Partially Examined Life, Episode 276, Part 2. We've been discussing Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. We're deep into the Sense Certainty chapter, and we'll finish Perception here. Anything else about sense certainty? We're up to about 108, 109 sections. 109 is kind of a tirade. (laughs) He basically makes fun of people who think that knowledge is really about this is our sense objects, that that's what it all boils down to. That's where we begin. So I think empiricism does ultimately take a hit here, even though perception is the more advanced form of empiricism. But he says at the bottom of the section 109... In this respect, we can tell those who assert the truth and certainty of the reality of sense objects, say that as scornfully as you can, the certainty of the reality of sense objects, that they should go back to the most elementary school of wisdom vis-a-vis the ancient Eleusinian mysteries of Ceres and Bacchus, that they have still to learn the secret meaning of the eating of bread and the drinking of wine. For he who is initiated into these mysteries not only comes to doubt the being of sensuous things, But to despair of it, in part he brings about the nothingness of such things himself in his dealings with them, and in part he sees them reduce themselves to nothingness. Even the animals are not shut out from this wisdom, but on the contrary, show themselves to be the most profoundly initiated into it. For they do not just stand idly in front of sensuous things as if they possessed intrinsic being, but despairing of their reality and completely assured of their nothingness, they fall to without ceremony and eat them up. And all nature, like the animals, celebrates these open mysteries which teach the truth about sensuous things. So if you wondered where Hegel really stood (laughs) on this issue, he goes ahead and makes that clear at the very end. And yet this is not skepticism, at least according to the Solomon. What's really distinctive about Hegel's account through these sections is that he's already, in the intro and the preface, just thrown out global skepticism completely. So despairing of the reality of these things does not mean like, well, I'm not sure if they're there. I can't be sure of anything. Therefore, since only the sure things are the eternal world is the truth or something like that, then it's not Plato's rejection of the reality of things because they are so inconstant, is it? It's a rejection of the claim that absolute knowledge is grounded in the immediate acquaintance with external particulars. There's a brief swipe again at skepticism in the paragraph that starts 109. But you're right, Mark. I mean, even earlier, as you say, he takes radical skepticism off the table as basically saying, you just even know what you're talking about. With that kind of tone, the context of it is that 
there's nothing wrong with us. We start where we're at and we start looking at the world and we work with that and refine that. And he sees no force in the rabidly skeptical argument. We have to cultivate a constant soft skepticism. That's a way in which I might understand the dialectic process itself anyway. It's a kind of constant soft skepticism. It's just I was starting to talk myself into a corner by musing on the relation between Pironian skepticism, this whole hearted and Plato, who does think, kind of like Hegel here, that concepts are the eternal things. Because as we were just describing in the sense certainty section, as soon as you point out a now, well, it's already shifted. It's already another now. And there's so many places in the perception and the force and the understanding section where I wrote Heraclitus somewhere or other, that this idea that the reason sense certainty is wrong is sort of for Heraclitean reasons, is because it is so shifting. Heraclitus and Plato, that's a claim about the being of it. It's not a claim about our knowledge of it, but it seems, you know, those things go hand in hand. If you think that the being is so shifting, then of course you're going to think that it can't be the basis of knowledge. What I was saying is that this is a claim about whether knowledge is acquaintance with bare particulars. You could say, well, that similarly is an arbitration of the question whether there are such things as bare particulars. I mean, they don't directly implicate each other, right? There could be such a thing as bare particulars, while it could also be the case that we don't have absolute knowledge of them, but they're not unlinked. In 110, he reminds us, right, he just sets up the transition to perception by, the way he'll put it is, the sensuous this that is meant cannot be reached by language which belongs to consciousness, that is, to what is inherently universal. And that this whole talk about external objects as being the foundation of knowledge, external objects of direct acquaintance, spare particulars, he calls this the most abstract of generalities. So if you were worried about universality being an abstraction, actually, that's the worst abstraction. So he sort of kind of repeats the way he began all of this. It doesn't have the richness that you think it does. If you're romantic, wanting to go back to direct acquaintance, you know, it doesn't have the wealth that you think it does. And for Hegel, of course, Hegel is a celebrator and a defender of the conceptual and the fact that that can be as concrete. That is where the wealth is. But in any case, what we come out of with sense certainty is the universal. And when we take that as an object, we get perception as the universal will become universals will become properties. So at last, unless somebody has, <laughs> I think you've made the transition, we can start perception, chapter two within A, page 67 of this Miller version. Perception or the thing and deception. Even though we've gotten to the outcome of the previous section, right, we ended up with the universal, but the dialectic begins anew, which is to say, now we are going to take the universal as a given, as an immediacy, and also as a something sensuous. So in taking the universal as a sensuous immediacy, we take it as a property. And that is actually going to get us into trouble. That's <laughs> going to create a new set of contradictions that will lead us at the very end of the perception to say, okay, the next appropriate object is force, and the understanding is the faculty that's related to that, and is the faculty that takes universals conceptually, which is where we're headed, right? So here we take the universal sensuously, and we kind of, in fact, or we kind of have this weird hybrid of the sensory 
and the universal, and that hybrid has contradictions in, inherent in it. Yeah, and just making that connection to Locke, it's not too far after, you know, we've got basic sense data, and then we've got ways that we are sort of building concepts. And before too long, we get to the point where we're thinking about what is actually out in the world is some sort of substance that is causing perceptions in me. So it's not that the red is out in the world, it is something that has a power. And so it has created this distinction that we have to use our minds to create models of the world out there, that there are just these things that they have shapes, but they cause, they reach out to us somehow and cause us to have certain reactions. And it's that sort of distinction, I think, that we're going to get to in forcing the understanding. So, but in this stage, perception, we're not quite there yet. We're not giving that sort of autonomy and complexity to the perceived world. It's just Yes, I'm applying universals. I now can call that a tree. I can call that an object. I can recognize that this refers to multiple things and even complex things about the eye. But there's a limit to the level of complexity that's involved in that. I think 112 gives a good description of where we are. Since the principle of the object, the universal, is in its simplicity a mediated universal, the object must express this, its nature, in its own self. This it does by showing itself to be the thing with many properties. The wealth of sense knowledge belongs to perception, not to immediate certainty, for which it was only the source of instances. For only perception contains negation, that is, difference or manifoldness, within its essence. So instead of a bare particular, now we get a thing that has many properties. And how we're supposed to think about that is what we're going to discuss moving forward. Do we think about it as a bundle of properties? Do we think about these properties as inhering in a substance or a medium? How does that all work? And how do we resolve the problem of the contrast between the unity of the object and the manyness of all the properties that belong to it? That's now the new dialectical contradiction that's going to unfold. Yes, I don't think this is going to be a straightforward critique of just empiricists, but it is involving a lot of the things that have come up in a few of our discussions, not the least of which is Locke himself being critical of the idea from Aristotle that we actually know anything about substances. Like, there has to be something that holds all these properties together, but like, we don't know anything about it. We just know that there are properties, and we will think that there must be something out there that is causing the properties. And then Barclay responds to that by saying, actually, this idea of a substance makes no sense. It is a self-contradictory thing. And we also get stuff that we talked about with respect to Plato in here and the concept of being the one and the many instances of the concept being the many. And this is taken maybe as a, if we want to say that the substance is something that has all the properties, well, like, what are these properties? What is their ontological status? So all these questions are buzzing around. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.